Right. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20 this morning, and you can find it on page 923 in the Bibles that are provided there in the pews. There are many paradoxes or tensions within the Christian faith. Ideas or concepts that come from Scripture, so these are God's truth for us, but when we look at them, sometimes it's difficult for us to see how exactly they fit together. They seem almost mutually exclusive. So, for example, the Trinity. How is God three in one? Or the, the person of, of Jesus Christ, how can he be fully God and fully man? We think about um, things like God's sovereignty and human responsibility. How is it that God can be sovereign and yet we are responsible for our actions? How can God be love and yet he is faithful and just to punish sin? Now, Scripture clearly affirms these truths. They are essential to the Christian faith, but it's difficult for us to put them all together. How is it that God's kingdom is already here and yet not fully present? How, is it, how does it work out exactly that, that the Bible was authored by the Holy Spirit and by men? How is it that we who are in Christ are new creations And yet we still struggle with our old sinful nature. How can it be that the Christian life is one both of resting and fighting? And how do we balance that tension between grace and truth? But perhaps what might seem to be the biggest paradox in the Christian life is this. How is a Christian to be marked by both humility and confidence? Those seem mutually exclusive to us. Not that that's more difficult for us to comprehend than, say, the Trinity, but that when we look at lives, when we think about what our concepts of humility are and confidence, they don't really seem to fit together. And we can find Christians that we would call uh, humble, but, you know, they're kind of quiet. They keep to themselves. They don't, they don't really claim to know a whole lot. Maybe they don't know much theology at all, but, but they're humble. And then you've got over here confident Christians on the other extreme where they think they know it all, and they're sure to tell you about it. See, they seem mutually exclusive. It's a paradox. And so how are we to be humble and yet confident as Christians, as, as those who are loving, as compassionate and patient slow to anger, and yet hold deeply to convictions, boldly proclaiming them with our words and with our very lives. It seems like a paradox to us, especially in our day and age. In our day, the world looks at a confident Christian as someone who is arrogant, who thinks he has the market cornered on God, on on the gospel, on truth, And in some cases, their assessment is not too far from the right. In the world's eyes, a humble person is one who claims to know nothing for certain but perhaps themselves. And they can brag about themselves all day. They can post a thousand selfies on Facebook. They can quote themselves. They can talk about themselves all day long as long as the only thing that they claim to know for certain is themselves. In the world's eyes, a humble person is, is someone who, who uh, accepts whatever you give them, who welcomes all experiences, and who makes no judgments about anything that takes place. You see, G.K. Chesterton rightly pointed out that the world has tried to place humility over the organ of conviction when it was meant to be placed over the organ of ambition. As he famously says, what the effect of that is, is that we are producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication tables. But the gospel of Jesus Christ humbles us. When we recognize who God is, when we see him for what he is in his word, then we begin to see ourselves rightly and it changes us. It transforms us. 
It, it works on our hearts and on our minds in such a way that our plans, our ambitions, our beliefs about God and his world that we are merely a very insignificant part of changes. It reveals to us who the true king and Lord of our lives really is, and it's not us. And at the same time, the gospel gives us confidence to proclaim this certain, this absolute, this authoritative truth in love to the uttermost ends of the earth with full assurance and confidence, not because there's anything special about us, not because we have this secret hidden knowledge, this this light that dwells within us that the world does not have, but because of who he is and what he has done for us. Our surety comes from the gospel itself. When we truly understand the gospel, we are both humble and confident. And we're going to see that this morning in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. As Paul and Barnabas travel throughout the region of Galatia, we see that whether they're speaking to self-exalting Jews or they're running away from persecution or they're speaking to Gentiles who you know, are desperately trying to scratch at God but are really ignorant to his will and ways, they maintain both humility and confidence and the reason they can do so is because of the gospel. And so what that means is their message to the people of Lystra in verses 15 through 17 is their message to us, and then in turn it is our message and the key to our living both in humility and in conviction. And the main message that we're going to see this morning is this, we are like you, but with better news. We're like you, but with better news. And so as we come to God's word this morning, may it humble us and give us deep and abiding confidence in Jesus Christ as we begin reading Acts chapter 14, verse 1 through 20. It says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities in Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance of the, to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they could scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when proclaiming the gospel to each other, and to those who do not follow Christ, we can maintain both humility and confidence in the Lord when we remember that we are like you, but with better news. 
And so I just want to break that statement down into two parts this morning. So first, we are like you. As if you think about it, isn't this how every hostility and animosity between people begin? With the idea that I am not like you. You are not like me. We are not like each other. We're different in some way. Different race, different culture, different values, different beliefs, different socioeconomic status, different age, different interests, different education level. We are nothing alike, you and I. We're different. We have nothing in common. I mean, isn't that how hatred and animosity and pride and fear arise within us? With the idea that I am not like you. And so we build up these seemingly unsurpassable social barriers between us. They, we build them up like walls, right? So that like a fortress that we can hide ourselves behind for protection or that we can climb up to the top and shoot down arrows of criticism and attacks because we believe that you're lower than me, that you're below me, or that you're my enemy. And it's rooted in our pride. We are not like you. And so when, when Barnabas and Paul, both Jews, one a former teacher, um, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. Um, it was true of, of the Jews that Paul and Barnabas were encountering here. Because you see, the Jews believed that, that they were a special and distinct people. If you think about it, as the offspring of their father Abraham, they were the covenant people of God. God had revealed himself to them. God had chose them from among the nations. They were a special people set apart from among all the other peoples of the world to be God's chosen people. God gave them the law, the worship, the covenant promises. And so according to family line, I am not like you. According to tradition, I am not like you. According to religion, I am not like you. But instead of seeing what made them special was God's covenant love, God's word, God's grace, God's promises. They started thinking that they were special by nature of who they were. We are of the line of Abraham and you are not. We have the law and we can keep it, but since you're a Gentile, you cannot. We are morally superior religiously superior, ancestrally superior to you. We are not like you. And so when Paul and Barnabas, both Jews, one a former teacher of the law and the other a Levite, so potentially a priest, would stroll into their synagogue and start preaching this message that God was faithful in preparing the way to send the risen Christ in a fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament promises and practices to free us from our sin. That this was accomplished in Jesus and now available to all people, you better believe they had a problem with it because we are not like them. And so they got jealous. They started poisoning people against them. That's what we saw happen in chapter 13 in Antioch and Pisidia, and that's what we see happening right here in verses 1 through 7. It says, Now at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas, sticking with their typical strategy, entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Friends, that word unbelieving there in verse 2, it's a pretty important word. Because what, it, what that word doesn't mean is that, well, they just failed to believe in Jesus. It's more than that. That word means that they were disloyal, that they were disobedient. It goes one step further. They're, you see, when we, when we disobey, when we are disloyal to God, we are unbelieving. We're not believing in God. We're not trusting in his promises. We're not following after him. Disobedience and disloyalty are unbelief. These were disloyal Jews. They were disobedient Jews because they refused to believe that Jesus is the risen Christ in fulfillment of all their scripture, in fulfillment of all their worship, in fulfillment of all God's promises that he made to Israel. 
You see, Jesus even said as much. During his earthly ministry, Jesus spoke to law-abiding religious Jews, and he said to them in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his name, you will gladly receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek glory that comes from the the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so, if they had actually believed Moses, if they had actually believed Scripture, if they had actually loved God, then they would have believed the gospel. They would have turned from this perversion of faith in God that exalts themselves and would have trusted in and followed Christ. But instead, they refused. They were disloyal, disobedient, and unbelieving towards all they thought that made them special. Because all they thought that made them special pointed to Jesus. Instead, they tried to stir up Gentiles and poison the minds, uh, their minds against the brothers. And, and though Paul and Barnabas are, are, are Jews, you need to understand they're, they're not really like us. They are false prophets. They have perverted and polluted our religion by saying that Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets. Don't believe them. They must be stopped because this is what our pride does. Right When we're confronted with the reality of our pride, we push back and we we try to poison others to believe what we believe. And despite the fact that in verse 3, Paul and Barnabas remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, they persisted in unbelief. Despite the fact that Christ himself bore witness to the word of his grace. Friends, this is the word of his grace. This is the word of his kindness, of his mercy, of his love. And And Christ himself bore witness with signs and wonders being done before them they still persisted in unbelief. Surely you cannot deny the evident work of God to, that he is doing in their, their, their midst before their eyes to support these claims. Christ himself is bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ with signs and wonders. But just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, just like they did with him, they probably accused Paul and Barnabas of performing miracles by the power of demons. See, they're not like us. They perform these works by the power of demons to deceive us. And so in verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when there was an attempt made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, when Paul and Barnabas learned of it, they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. But what did they do? They continued to preach the gospel. And so there we see the typical strategy. Go to the synagogues first, reason with Jew and Gentile, typical response of the crowds, right? Some believe, some rejected, typical resolve to continue to preach the gospel. So if you're preaching one through seven, that's, that's your outline right there. But we're not doing that, right? Just like we saw in chapter 13, this false notion of the religious, moral, and ancestral superiority of the Jews led to opposition, it led to reviling, division, and persecution because they refused to acknowledge that apart from faith in Christ, they were no better off than anyone else. They were hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world. And so, Paul and Barnabas hear of this plot to mistreat them, Stone them, and so they flee to Lystra, but, but there they receive a very, very different response. In verse 8, now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said to him in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. Now guys, don't miss that. This man listened to Paul speaking. 
and he had faith. And so just like in Jesus' ministry, the inward working of God was verified by the outward working of this miracle. The miracle is Christ outwardly bearing witness to the inward working of his grace in this man's life. So the point is not the miracle. Don't get sidetracked by that. But the fact that this man heard and believed this word of his grace. And so in verse 10, Paul said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. I mean, talk about a different response here. The Jews, in their stubborn unbelief, rejected repeated signs and wonders over a long period of time that bore witness to the word of his grace. They, they refused to acknowledge the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word, how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. But as soon as Paul and Barnabas show up in Lystra, one man believes immediately and is healed, but the rest of the people, seeing the miracle, attempted to worship them as gods. They're not like us, all right, but in a very, very different way. It's Zeus and Hermes. Now, scholars, scholars want to think that Lystra was a bit redneck, you know, that uh, they're uh, a bit backwater simpletons who are missing teeth and marry their sisters kind of backwoods redneck. And they get that primarily from the fact that these uh, Lystrans see the miracle, this man born lame suddenly walking around, and they try to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. But friends, let's keep this in mind. It doesn't appear that there's a synagogue there in Lystra. And if there's not a synagogue there in Lystra, that means that there's little or no access to the word of God. And so they're going off of what they know. It doesn't mean that they're simpletons. It just means that they had no access to the word of God. They have just come face to face with an inexplicable miracle, right? It's not something you can ignore. It's not something you can deny. No, that didn't really happen. I mean, here's the guy that was born lame, now suddenly up and walking around, and everybody sees it. And so at that point, you're like, what are you going to do, right? Who are you going to attribute it to, right? Are you going to attribute it to demons, or are you going to attribute it to the divine? Well, the Jews would opt for the former, the Gentiles for the latter. This has to be the gods. You see, according to their mythology, Jupiter and Mercury, these are the Greek counterparts of the Roman Zeus and Hermes, disguised themselves as men to walk among the people in the region of Phrygia, which is the neighboring region to Lyconia. So this, this legend took place not that far away from them. And what happened is, is as they were walking around disguised as men, people kept rejecting them. They wouldn't welcome them in. They wouldn't show them hospitality. But there was this one older couple, this poor couple. They welcomed them in. They showed them hospitality. And so as a consequence of this, they revealed their true nature. They destroyed all the households that rejected them in a flood. And they transformed the house of this elderly couple, Philemon, and I can't remember her name, but... Uh, transformed it into a temple, and they were made priest and priestess of Zeus. And so they're thinking to themselves, okay, well, I don't want that to happen to me. You don't have to be a simpleton to buy into that kind of logic, right? Our legends say that, that if you reject the gods, they will curse you, but if you welcome them, they will bless you. A miracle has just happened. Only the gods can do that. I don't want my house to be destroyed, so I better worship them as gods, right? And if they give me what I want, if I do it, well, then that's a win-win. So you don't have to be a backwater simpleton to buy into that logic. And in fact, many intelligent people throughout the world do just that. They try to worship the divine in order to acquire blessings and to avoid curses, it's the fire insurance approach to faith. Giving the gods 
what they want in order to get good and to evade the bad. And this is prevalent among those who profess faith in Christ. This is prevalent among every other religion and our worldview on the planet. Even atheists or agnostics do the same thing, giving praise and honor to anything that will be a source of gain and a source of security against loss. And again, this is related to pride. I will offer praise and glory so long as my life gets better and I can be proud of what I gain. Now, all of this is taking place at warp speed in the language of the Lyconians. Paul and Barnabas don't really know what's going on, but in verse 14, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, men, we are like, uh, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Why are you doing this? We are also men of the same nature with you. We are not gods. We are no better than you. And unlike Herod in chapter 12, who refused, uh, who accepted glory that was due to God, was eaten by worms and breathed his last, you see them refusing to receive glory that belonged to God. In fact, they would rather be stoned than to fail to give God alone the glory. They would rather be stoned than to receive what belonged to God and God alone. I mean, chew on that for a minute. Herod sought glory that belonged to God alone, and he died horribly. But Paul and Barnabas would tear their garments, rush into the crowd, desperately trying to restrain them, and Paul would be stoned and dragged from the city, left for dead before he would dare to receive glory that belonged to God. Friends, what does that tell us about the glory of God? What does that tell us about our attempts or our efforts to receive glory from other people? Even at the cost of their lives, they would not dare give glory to another or receive glory that belonged to God. And so, they said to the people of Lystra, we are also men of like nature with you. We are not gods. We are no better than you. Yes, Christ has done this miracle before you, but we are no better than you. Yes, we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made all there is, but we are no better than you. We are just men of like nature with you. And guys, again, keep this in mind, they were Jews. Jews who made it a point to say, we are better than you morally, religiously, and ancestrally. And they are saying, nope, that's not the case. We are like you. We are of the same nature with you. Now, how could they say that? Yes, of course, ontologically, they're all human beings, But friends, how could they persist in boldly speaking for the Lord among self-righteous, legalistic Jews who opposed them, who reviled them, who contradicted them, who brought division among people who tried to oppose the faith and lead others away from it, who incited persecution, who hunted them for over 100 miles on foot in order to stone them to death? How can they do that? Well, because we are like you. We're the same nature with you. You think that Paul didn't think to himself that before Christ gave him eyes to see that he did the exact same things? He hunted Christians, breathing threats and murder, bound them in prison, approved of their deaths. I'm like you. Don't you think that as these pagan Gentiles who had never heard of the will and ways of God were persuaded by the Jews from Antioch and Iconium to stone Paul, that as these rocks were being hurled towards him, Paul didn't remember how he held the garments of this enraged mob and gave approval as these angry Hellenists stoned Stephen? 
I wonder if he remembered Stephen's words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Man, I'm just like you. You're throwing stones at me, but I'm just like you. Do you think that had any part to play in, in why when he came to, in verse 20, he entered back into the city? You see, whether you consider yourself to be a moral, religious, upright person, or you're just doing anything you can to blindly assuage the gods to give you blessing rather than curse, the truth is we are no different. No different. We have the same physical nature and we have the same spiritual nature. Whether you would consider yourself to be a God-fearer or a false worshiper, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness and we have, we have bought into the lie and we worship and serve the created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We make gods out of any number of things, even ourselves, because look how great we are. And so whether you are legalist or someone who is totally lost on the other end, worshiping any version of an idol to gain gain greater satisfaction and security in this life apart from faith in Christ, we are all the same. We are like you. Justly condemned sinners under the wrath of God. Dead in our sin, enslaved by our sin, and condemned in our sin. Friends, knowing that humbles us. Knowing that makes us compassionate and and long-suffering, even when they're seeking to harm us, because we know that apart from the saving work of God in Christ, we are just alike, just like the Jew and just like the Gentile, hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world. That apart from him, no matter how good or how moral or how religious we might consider ourselves to be, no matter how clueless or immoral, we are all the same, sinners justly condemned. And friends, what the world needs from us is humility. The world does not need self-exalting do-gooders looking down their self-righteous noses because you don't hold to my commands and my traditions that cannot save. And nor do they need well-meaning but yet ignorant pagans who get all excited about manifestations of the Spirit, but are just as foolish as the false gods that they worship. They need people who have been humbled by the gospel to tell them the gospel with grace, mercy, compassion, and truth. What they need are humble and compassionate people who realize, you know what? I'm just like you. I'm just like you, but second, I just happen to have better news. Friends, you can't get any more like a Christian persecuting Jew than a former Christian persecuting Jew. There is absolutely no difference between Paul and these Jews other than where they lived and the good news that they hoped in. And for the Jews, it was family lineage It was obedience to the law of Moses, so their worship, and it was the covenant mercies of God. But the good news that Paul proclaimed was that God has been faithful ever since the creation of man, preparing the way and sending the risen Christ to die an innocent death for sin and rise from the grave in order to fulfill Scripture so that we might be freed from our sin. That's available to any and to all regardless of background, regardless of sin, regardless of lineage or or any other thing that we would think separates us in our pride. Verses 1 through 7 at Iconium are almost a repeat of chapter 13, verses 13 through 52 in Antioch. His message to the Jews would have been similar to his previous message, which was similar to the messages that Peter preached or that Stephen preached. 
And I gotta ask you guys, what, what's so horrible about this good news that he proclaimed that they scoffed and refused to believe? What was so bad about it that they attempted to stir up the Gentiles and to poison the minds of, of these unbelievers to the point that they tried to stone them to death? It's summed up in chapter 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Christ has accomplished what you could never accomplish. Christ has done what you could never do. Christ is the answer to all that God has been doing throughout history of your people. He's the fulfillment of all your worship, all your hopes, all your promises. He's the Christ, died and risen. By his perfect life, sacrificial death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave, he has fulfilled all of God's promises and offered the hope of eternal life to all who would follow him. But this word of his grace was extended not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well, absolutely leveling the playing field, removing all grounds of boasting in yourself, in your righteousness, in your worship, in your lineage, or in your good works. This is the good news of grace. But even more than that, Luke records that the Lord himself was bearing witness to this word of grace with signs and wonders. Do you need any greater proof that this is the word of God, that this is the answer that you've been looking for? Here, look, he's performing miracles so that you might know. And still they rejected it. Here, God was doing a work in their days that they would not believe even though someone was telling it to them. Friends, here's why this is a big deal. This is how much we want to be like God. This is to what ends we would strive to persuade ourselves that we can do it on our own, that we can be gods in our own eyes. This is how much we want to boast in ourselves and receive glory for ourselves that we would refuse the offer of free grace even when God is making it evident to us through signs and wonders. The unbelieving, disobedient, and disloyal Jews hated this gospel message so much because it meant that all of their effort, all of their traditions, all of the things that they boasted in could never save them but merely pointed them to the one that could. This message of grace extending as a light to the nations meant that they could no longer exalt themselves over the Gentiles because of their race. Because they thought they were better. And in the most insane and twisted irony of unbelief, in, uh, in attempting to separate themselves out, to continue to boast, in refusing to be put on the same level as the Gentiles, they actually align themselves with pagan Gentiles, people that they would have nothing to do with in order to silence this word of God's grace. I mean, think about that for a minute. I don't want to have anything to do with you, so I'm going to have everything to do with you so that I don't have to do, have anything to do with you. It's insanity. But friends, this is what the people did in Jesus' day. This is what the Jewish religious leaders did when they aligned themselves with the Roman, excuse me, the Roman or the Gentile authorities to put Jesus to death. This is how much they hate the gospel because he's not the Christ that we want. This is not the kind of grace that we want. Because God is not making much of me. I want him to make much of me. I want it to be about me, not about him. And friends, this is given freely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the Gentiles in Lystra were just as crazy. 
Right? I mean, you look at that, you've got to scratch your head. What on earth were they thinking? I mean, they, how could you go from wanting to offer sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas as gods to being persuaded by strange Jews from other towns, right, to stone them to death? I mean, if somebody comes down from Rantoul and says, hey, you need to kill this guy, what are you going to say to him? You're crazy. I'm calling the cops. You don't stone the man, right? So how could they go from worshiping them to being ready to stone them? Well, could it be that there's a part of us that by nature suppresses the truth about God in unrighteousness and exchanges the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles? You see, we want a God that's different enough from us that he can give us what we want, but we want a God that's enough like us that all glory is not due his name. Because I want that for myself. And do you get that? I mean, we, they, they will gladly worship them as a demigod to get whatever they think they want or need, but not worship the one true and living God who alone deserves all the glory. Because friends, how else could you take offense by Paul's message to them in verse 15? Men, Why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, which would include you. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So why, why the offense? Were they embarrassed because, you know, they just went from trying to offer sacrifices to them to recognizing their men and just, well, that's, that, I don't want people, that to get around. Let's kill these guys. Was it because he said these things were vain, that they were empty, that they were worthless, that they were foolish? Was it because of the statement that God had allowed nations in past generations to walk in their own ways, and they took that as a nice way of saying, y'all are ignorant? And so it hurt their feelings. Or was it because this good news that Paul proclaimed required that they turn? It required that they repent of these futile things to follow the one true and living God who made all that there is. You see, if there is one true and living God, then every aspect of life comes from him and bears witness to him. And so what that means is you're guilty because you have failed to acknowledge that. If there is one true and living God, then all truth, all authority, all glory belongs to him, and we do not get to pick and choose. If there is one true and living God, then the only way to worship him is in the way that he reveals, in the way that he chooses, not in any derivative or practice or form that we prefer. If there is one true and living God, then all glory belongs to him regardless of what he gives you or not. Your worship does not gain you any favor with him or blessing in this life, it is simply what you were created to do. And friends, like a fish is meant, is created to swim in water, the fish is free when he's swimming in water. He tries to get out of the water. He's not free. We were created to worship God. And in worshiping the one true living God, we are free. Any substitute, anything less than that, is death. It's trying to live as a fish out of water. And if there is one true and living God, then any good, any good, rains from the heavens, fruitful seasons, satisfying hearts with food and gladness, is the work of his common grace and not your meritorious worship. He gives just because he's good. If all, and if all you want 
are the blessings that come from God rather than loving God for the fact that He is so gracious, then you will hate this message because it reveals that you are worshiping in vain. Friends, you cannot buy God's goodness through worship. He gives it freely to whomever He will according to His good nature and His sovereign purposes. No one deserves it. No one can earn it. And so if he extends his grace towards Jew or towards Gentile, then praise be his name. If he causes the rain to fall on the righteous and on the wicked, then praise be his name. If he gives and then he takes away, then praise be his name. If he allows some to remain in their hard-hearted rebellion against him while giving new hearts to others, allowing them to now behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, then praise be his name. You see, The gospel not only reveals that you and I, regardless of our background, regardless of our circumstances, are all alike. It not only reveals that it's not about us and not about what we do to worship God, but the gospel reveals that our hope, our confidence, our assurance, our strength comes from who God is and what he has done. And so do not look upon his goodness with disdain. This is a deep warning to us because we're so prone to grumble or complain. Every ray of light, every breath of air, every drop of rain from the heaven, every morsel that has filled your mouth, every success, every satisfaction, every laugh, Every tear, every moment of gladness in your heart has been given to you by God because he is good. Not because of you, but because he is good. If you, you've rejected him. You've rebelled against him. You've suppressed the truth about him and unrighteousness. And so you, just like we all, deserve the wrath of God. But he is good. And not only that, he's so loving. So loving that while we were still sinners, he sent his one and only son to do what you and I could never, ever do. To pay the ransom and penalty for sin and rise again. So that we might be able to spend eternity with God. Not to sort of right the wrongs and bring us back into a a place of neutrality where we're sort of in God's good graces again, but that we get to spend all eternity in God's glory. Friends, that is good news. That's better news than you can find anywhere else in the world. Not in any other religion. Not in trying to make your life about the things that this world provides. This is the good news. We don't worship God because we hope that he will give us what we want. We worship God because he already has. Because that's who he is. And you've got to get that. Because if you don't get that, your worship is going to be perverted. It's going to be tainted. It's going to be in vain. It's a response to who God is and what he has done, not to gain anything from him. And for that, we love him. Friends, if God satisfies hearts with food and gladness through his common grace, then how much greater is the satisfaction that comes from his saving grace in Christ? Our hearts are made forever glad by the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is what gives us confidence. That's what gives us joy. That's what makes our hearts glad in God. That's what brings hope and joy and peace and believing. That's what causes us to persevere in gospel ministry, even in the face of persecution, and to get up and to walk back into the city yet again, even after they stoned you. It's what enables us to humbly hold to our convictions and preach the gospel with boldness and with compassion, with grace and with truth. 
Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is our hope. Because we realize that we are just like you. We've just been given better news. So friends, both in humility and confidence, may we make the gospel known both near and far for the glory of God, for the good of others, and for our joy in Him. Because we are just like you, but with better news. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this grace that you have shown us not just in in the blessings that come from this world. God, it is amazing when you think about all of the blessings that we experience in life. Every breath that we take, every laugh, everything that we find pleasing, even in moments, and that's nothing compared to the grace that you've shown us in Christ. That's nothing compared to our future glory that awaits when we see him face to face. God, I pray that that would change us. God, open our eyes to the ways that we are so prone to to worship you in vain. Try to think that our, our good works or our superiority in some way is what makes us pleasing to you. We deny you glory because you are God. You are good and you do whatever you please and because you're good, you lavish grace upon us. Yes, you, you are just. Yes, your wrath is against those who sin against you. But, but so is your kindness and mercy and long-suffering. And this is the time for us to tell them the truth. That all of their worship apart from faith in Christ is in vain. But in him, we come face to face with the goodness of God. Lord, I pray that that would be a comfort to us when we look at our life and our circumstances. I pray that it would humble us and make us bold. That it would strengthen us for the task of making disciples of all nations, taking the gospel to those who do not know. Not because we think we're better, but because we know Jesus is. And we know that it's only by His grace that we can come to You. And so, Lord, we thank You. Change our hearts, change our minds, change our lives so that we might faithfully proclaim Him to others until He comes again. It's in His name we pray. Amen.